you'd open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah 6. Anybody have trouble seeing in this world? And I'm not talking about visually, because most of us are partially blind. No, what I'm really talking about is spiritually. And that's what this passage is really about. Isaiah 6, one of the beautiful passages here where Isaiah gets one of the rare glimpses of what it's like in the heavens. We're not told much about heaven throughout scripture, but this passage is one of them. And you're going to see in this passage something that I think is tremendously important for us as believers. And that is very often in our lives, you're going to find that in order for us to see God the way he is, for us to hear him, to understand what he wants, God has to remove something from our lives for that to happen. And sometimes those things are really, really, really good things. And that's the case tonight for Isaiah the prophet. Remember the situation? Isaiah is prophesying in Judah. It's all that's left of the Jewish people is the southern kingdom. Israel, the northern kingdom is gone. Uh, They were carried away into captivity and dispersed amongst nations. And there are still some of them out there, but the Assyrians wiped them out. And so Isaiah and Jeremiah, at the same time, are prophesying over Judah in Jerusalem. And finally, they get a good king. And if you know anything about the history of the kings of Israel, uh, they were prone to have not so great kings because they were usually looking for the flesh. They They were looking for earthly traits and not heavenly ones. And so I pray that the Lord would just minister to us as we study his word tonight. Let's pray and we'll pick up here with verse one. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for the things that you have graciously removed from our lives. Lord, where you see that there's a hindrance to our spiritual growth. Lord, you move in power and majesty to pull those things out that sometimes keep us from seeing you. And so, Lord, if there's anything in us, any wicked way, any good thing, Lord, that's standing between us and you, we ask you to remove it tonight. Help us to keep it gone. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. It's kind of an interesting way to open up a chapter, amen? In the year that King Uzziah died. In the year that Jeff croaked. In, in the week that we all kicked the bucket. Now, it, it's an interesting way for sure to open up a chapter. But this is extremely perfect for the point that I believe the Lord wants to make. For in the year that King Uzziah died, I, that would be Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Uzziah was a very popular king. Not only was he a popular king, he was a very successful king. And in fact, Judah prospered under his reign. 
Judah for the first time was actually victorious over the Philistines. So these capital cities of the Philistine Empire, Ashdod and Gath, were finally captured. The walls that had been seemingly impenetrable for so many years, Isaiah managed to have his, a, a part of his story was witnessing the battles where King Uzziah's soldiers took these cities. And so from a very practical standpoint, there was absolutely nothing about Uzziah that anyone would have ever wanted him to die. Matter of fact, I'm sure the people of Judah were praying, oh, please don't take King Uzziah. And in fact, we're going to find out that his sons, not good. And I think for us, the lesson is this. Sometimes prosperity can be be a very, very strong adversary. Sometimes the good things that we have can get in the way of what God wants to show us. In this case, Uzziah had given him fresh water. He had, you know, done this incredible work inside the city of Jerusalem. He'd managed to put together an army now that totaled some 300,000 men. There was lots and lots of good things that you could say, man, if ever there was a time to rejoice, it's right now because we have Uzziah the king. And his name spread throughout all of the land. And actually, the, the book of Second Chronicles gives us a little bit of insight. And in chapter 26, we find a little bit of the history of King Uzziah there. And now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. There was even something in Uzziah's youth that people could tell this guy had something going on. So he was, he was an incredible king. And, and it says about him, and this is a crazy thing, as long as he sought the Lord, and you can find this, you can read the chapter later there in Second Chronicles 26. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He reigned for 52 years. So he sought the Lord for a very, very, very long time. And Judah prospered under his hand. And yet it wasn't until Isaiah got to this place where God forcibly takes Uzziah, this great king, home that he could actually see the Lord. And this is where this story touches us. You see, because Isaiah's eyes were on Uzziah the king. Isaiah's trust was in Uzziah the king. Isaiah's trust was in the goodness, the greatness, the grandeur, the things that Uzziah was doing. Isaiah put his hope and put his trust instead of in God. I think there's a picture here that Isaiah and all of Judah had put someone else on the throne of heaven. And I think that is our propensity. We are prone to put someone, something else on the throne of heaven. 
even good things. It can be our spouses. It can be our children. It can be our job. It can be prosperity. It can be our country. We can put all kinds of other things on the throne of heaven. And when we do, we set ourselves up just like the children of Israel to really, in that sense, have an empty throne. A throne that's really not occupied at all because these little gods of our making, as good as they are, end up leaving us empty because they're not God. Well, they last for a while. Those good things will sustain you for a moment or two. The arm of flesh cannot sustain you indefinitely, but it might prop you up for a day or two. I don't think we think about the Lord as much in prosperity as we do in need or in want, do we? At least I don't. Maybe you do. But I have a tendency to become complacent. Uh, I have a tendency to become comfortable. I think most people do. When I have all of my needs met, when things are going well, when there is a good king on the earthly throne, sometimes I forget to look at the heavenly throne. I stop remembering where those good things came from in the first place because every good and perfect gift has come down from where? Our Father of lights who is in heaven, amen? And so when we put an earthly king on heaven's throne, we sell God short, we sell his glory short, and in fact, we remove the power of the throne of heaven because we've really handed it over to a man or to a relationship or to maybe our prosperity, just the simple things that we own. And in that sense, God's throne is empty because Uzziah was sitting on it. God's throne is empty because the marriage crisis is sitting on it. God's throne is empty because your kids are possessed. God, God's throne is empty because the bank account's empty. You, you see, sometimes the throne gets empty because we put something else there, and when that something else isn't working the way we intend it to, or when that something else becomes our object of trust, you can only have one king. You can only have one master. There can only be one person at a time on that throne. And if someone else or something else is on the throne of heaven, then for all intents and purposes, the throne is actually empty. There's really no one sitting on it unless God is sitting on it. In the children of Israel, one king after another had been assassinated. And basically Uzziah, because of his goodness, was protected by the people of Judah. And so because of that goodness, they kept making sure that Uzziah lived. Now what are they going to do? Isn't it funny how we prop up our own little system that we make in our life? And, and we push it along and we prop it up and we do all the things necessary to save it. And again, there's nothing wrong with financial planning. You should do that. There's nothing wrong with bank accounts. You should have one. There's nothing wrong with having a home. That's an absolute necessity in our world. Nothing wrong with having nice. None of those things are bad things. But sometimes we put all those things together and we put them on the throne. And God kind of sits off to the side 
And as we're looking at our lives, we kind of think all this stuff is actually what's making life good. All this stuff is, is what's giving us prosperity. All this stuff, in essence, has replaced the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it is important that we see the Lord on the throne of heaven all day, every day. Because eventually you're going to find something that you can say, man, I need the help of heaven here. And see, God wants to be in that place all day, every day for us. He doesn't want to have to be put back there because something replaced him the day before. He wants to be on that throne all day, every day. He wants our hearts inclined. We, we sang this, this incredible prayer that actually comes from this passage of Scripture. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's the cry of the angels. That's what they say. When someone actually sees heaven for what it is, that's what happens to us. We cry holy. It's like, Lord, you alone, this characteristic of holiness. You know, sometimes I laugh when people try and describe it because you actually can't because it only applies to God. Human beings only have holiness that's granted to us because of what's happened in us, but we ourselves are not holy. We've never been holy, and we won't be holy ever, including when we get to heaven. We'll just be like God. Only God is holy. He alone possesses holiness because he is holy. And so when we look at this scene, it's really clear that there's one that we're supposed to cry holy to, and everything else is less than that. And it's a lesson for us in our world today. Because we're prone to tremble when we see the world conditions. We're prone to tremble when we look at the financial things that face us. We're prone to be scared. Uh, any sane person, when they think about the world and how tenuous it is, has a reason to go, oh my, the only answer to this is God in heaven. I was talking with a guy a couple days ago, and we were talking about just kind of some of the things that were going on in the world, and this whole insanity that's happening right now in Iran and, you know, what's going to happen and are we going to send more troops and is there going to be a war and all those kind of things. And by the way, that, that is scary. But at the end of the day, if God is in heaven, then it's all going to work out. If we put our government on God's throne, it's not going to work out. If we put a general or a president or, you know, a, a mullah or the ayatollah on heaven's throne, it's not going to work out. If we put the EU on heaven's throne, it won't work out. If we put a peace treaty on heaven's throne, it won't work out. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's only room for one God on heaven's throne. And so when we put something else there and we start to hope and trust in a political alliance, some kind of peace treaty, a brokering of a temporary cessation of hostility between nations. As good as that would be temporarily, it still is not going to solve the real problem because the real problem is not in Tehran. The real problem is in the heart of men. That's the real problem. That, that's a God-sized problem. 
So if God's on the throne, you have hope. As wonderful as our military is, it's not the hope of the world. God alone is the only hope we have in this world. Amen? And I say that very respectfully of the wonderful men and women who are serving in our armed forces, but we're not the answer to the world's problems. We never have been and never will be. God has to be on the throne. When the Lord reigns, everything's good. If the Lord is not reigning, no matter what is good, it's actually not good. In this passage, we get a glimpse of heaven. We see the cherubim. Notice verse 2, and above it stood a seraphim. And there are two basic types of heavenly beings that we see in Scripture, cherubim and seraphim. And I'll look at both of those. But the seraphim, each one had six wings with, with which two he covered his faith, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, for the whole earth is full of his glory. And so we get this picture of the throne room of heaven. And interestingly enough, this this mirrors uh, also what we see uh, in the ancient temple and in the tabernacle. And it appears that there's some similarity between these two angelic beings and they're really just classes of angels if you want to look at them that way and and so the cherubim were the winged angels and you know of course everybody has this picture of these chubby little babies with stubby wings that fly all over heaven um that is not what they look like okay we may call it cherubic we use that term like it's of a cherub but that doesn't mean rosy cheeks These angels were powerful. They're attendants to the throne of God. They sit constantly in the holiness of God. And it's interesting to me that with two wings they covered their face because of the holiness of God. And with two wings they covered their feet because of the holiness of God. They only move when God moves and they only see what God wants them to see. And they don't fly until God allows them to see where they need to go and know where they need to move. If the angels in heaven seeing God do that, how important do you think it is that we see God before we move? Or that we recognize where he wants us to go before we start walking? You see, the cherubim knew that. Cherub is singular. The I am ending is just plural in Hebrew. So cherubim is many. The seraphim, the burning ones, the proclaimers. And so you have the proclaimers and you have the protectors. You have the ones around the throne of God. And you have those who are going to proclaim what God wants to say to the people. We see the same exact picture in the book of Ezekiel, by the way. So if you read chapters 1 and 10, you'll see the same angelic scene. And as they gather around the throne, it kind of gives us a picture of the things that are happening in heaven. And for us, I think sometimes we forget we're going to go here. 
I don't know whether you ever think of this or not, but when you read your Bible, do you ever think of the fact that someday you're actually going to go to heaven? I don't know if you've ever pondered that, but seeing multitudes, millions, I don't know, billions of angels gathered around the throne of God crying, holy, holy, holy. And I've had people go, well, you know, that sounds boring. If the glory of God is boring to you, then don't bother going to the Grand Canyon, okay? Because the Grand Canyon will do nothing for you if the glory of God doesn't stimulate you. Because the glory of God is expressed in the way that you see. The glory of God is expressed in how you hear. The glory of God is expressed in what you feel. He created you. So what you see and what you hear, what you know, what you experience, all of it was created by God. And so if the angels in heaven, having a very full understanding, far greater than ours of who God is, are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, I'm pretty sure that we're going to be kind of impressed. Amen? Revelation 4, verse 1 says this, after these things... John's describing the heavenly scene. And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here and I will show you the things which must, must take place after this. And this is prior to the, the end of the church age. John is getting a little mini rapture. He's getting a view of heaven, if you will. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, the throne set in heaven and one sat on that throne and he who sat on it was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. In other words, he was semi-transparent, light went through him and out of him, refracted. And there was a rainbow around the throne in the appearance of an emerald. People have often said, well, this is like Wizard of Oz. I don't know. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders seated, sitting, clothed in white, and in robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads, and from the throne proceed lightnings and thunderings and voices, and seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, around the throne, were four living creatures, full of eyes front and back and the first living creature was like a lion the second like that of a calf and the third had the face of a man the fourth creature was like a flying eagle the four living creatures each having six wings what do you think they were they were cherubim were full of eyes within and around they do not rest night or day saying Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Amen. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders, now check this out, representing the church of all the church age, this completed church that's in heaven. Worship him who lives forever and ever. The moment the worship begins with holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. Look what they do with their crowns. 
It's like, I'm not wearing this crown in front of him. Oh, no. Off come the crowns. Where do they go? Before the throne, right at the feet of Jesus, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And so John and Isaiah and Ezekiel see this heavenly scene. And as they try and describe it, it's almost like their minds have gone to a place that we can't even imagine. Because it is a place that we can't actually fully imagine. It's the awesomeness of God. And someday we're going to join in that chorus. So start practicing with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. Amen? To him belongs all glory and honor and power and dominion forever and ever and ever and ever. And then they say, Amen! You see, that's who belongs on the throne of your life. Is the one who's worthy of that. Presidents are not worthy of that. As good as they may be. Governments are not worthy of that. Political treaties are not worthy of that. Money is definitely not worthy of that. Your own little world power that you're the the prince of is not worthy. Because a lot of people, guess who sits on the throne of their heart? Them. We call it narcissism. Amen? I'm just narcissistic. I, I put me on the throne because I'm the one that really matters. I worship myself. When you get a glimpse of heaven, all you can say is holy Holy, holy is the Lord. Make sure God stays holy in your life. That you attribute to him all the glory and honor to his name. Because when you do that, things change. Your perspective change, changes. And ultimately, it is in that place that you can actually see clearly. You can see correctly. Notice verse 4. Here's what happens once this begins. As the angels bust out in song, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, this is totally a heavenly scene. And so it goes back to Isaiah. So he sees this scene, he hears this scene in his mind. He, he, he can understand and appreciate this is not like anything I've ever seen on earth. Now bear in mind, he's in Jerusalem. The Jews had a wonderful, singular place that no other people before or since have ever occupied. And you know what that is? God actually physically dwelt with them. That was him that was the pillar of fire and that was him that was the cloud and it was with him that they met on the day of atonement they actually got to meet god in that sense they didn't see him in his full glory but no other people 
that temple is still on the temple mount, the first one. Solomon's temple would come along a little bit later. But the glory of that temple was still visible. Isaiah's in Jerusalem. And here's what happens when you actually see God. When you actually see things for the way you should see them. And so I said, woe is me. For I am undone. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity has been taken away. Your sin has been purged. You see, when you see correctly, the first thing you see is you. Correctly. I don't know how many of you, you know, it's been a little chilly and you fire up the shower in the morning and the steam gets on the mirror and then you go to kind of do your face after you've taken a shower. Everything looks pretty good in the steam, doesn't it? It's kind of like I like that because when I look through the steam, I look really good. It's like, and then I wipe the steam away and I go, oh, it's you. You're back. You see, we see in a mirror dimly without a reflection of heaven. We don't see things correctly. When you compare yourself to the world, you're going to look just fine. When you compare yourself to other Christians, you're going to look okay. You're going to look much better than some, maybe not as good as others. But when you compare yourself to humankind, you're generally going to come out pretty good. Your life is going to stack up to other people who are just like you. When you look in a mirror dimly, when you see yourself through the haze of this life, it's all good. But when what you're reflecting your life in is the throne room of heaven, guess how you look? Every wart, every wrinkle, every, in my case, birthmark and age spot. I had no idea that melatonin could collect in so many places. Some of you know what I'm saying. You're like, that's a new one. I'm no, I don't have... Me personally, I don't have age spots anymore. I am an age spot. <laughs> it's like there's just one and it's me. And, I, and I'm saying this for a reason. You see, when you see yourself correctly, you see all those things. When the mirror is totally clean, you get it. You look at it and you go, man, I need like more teeth whitening. And you know, you can do the whole thing, right? You see, when I see myself in heaven's light, I understand the problem. That's what happened to Isaiah. He saw himself in the light of heaven. And when you see yourself in the light of heaven, 
When you see yourself relative to the glory of God, you understand fully what you are not. And you go, woe is me. I'm undone. I don't bring anything to this party. You see, our problem in this world is we think we bring something to the party. And so we can put other things on the throne of God. And instead of putting God on the throne, we put something else on the throne because in this world, that something else might actually be better than something else in the world. The problem is it's not better than God. And so until we see correctly ourselves, we're tempted to worship some other God. It's a very similar thing that Peter recognized that's why he said to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Lord, please don't look at, don't even look at me. Because when I see myself correctly, why would you ever want to, and the glorious thing is he does want to be around us, amen? He loves us. That's why Jesus came in the first place. He wants to be around us. But he wants us to admit who we are. He wants us to confess, it's why Daniel, which we're studying on Sunday nights, why, why he describes my beauty turns into ugliness. When I see myself correctly, all the things that I hope in, all of my Uzziahs don't look so good. All the things, I'm, think, things that I think I'm really good at. And I don't know how many of you have had this experience in your life, but I think as we grow in Christ, we start checking off some additional Uzziahs. It's like initially you can kind of see the things that really need to go, but after a while, you know, I'm kind of arrogant. I'm a little bit prideful. I still actually hope and trust in my intellect. Or maybe it's my career that I'm trusting in. There might be something I'm putting on the throne of heaven that when you really look at it, that is actually your God. Because that's where you go to pray. That's where you go to worship. Worship can become worship. You can start to worship worship. Did you know that? Did you know you can start to worship Bible study? You understand what I'm saying? People can get so religious that their God that's on their throne is a daily reading plan. Now, let me be clear here. It's a great thing to read your Bible. But when your daily reading plan actually takes the place of the Holy One in heaven then your daily reading plan, a good thing, just like Uzziah, becomes king. And all of a sudden, you're not worshiping anymore. You're just being uber diligent about the things of the Lord. You know what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm getting at, church? We have to be careful. God must always remain on our throne. He alone is the object of worship. Let me give you one that's really pertinent to me. I have watched pastors worship the ministry. I have watched pastors worship their own ministry. And all of a sudden it becomes the one that sits on the throne is the way they do ministry. That is a super dangerous thing because ministry is good, amen? If you're worshiping the Lord and praising God and teaching the Word, it's all good. 
But if ministry becomes your God, you're no longer worshiping the throne in heaven. You're worshiping an earthly throne that's made out of concrete and wood and carpet and stuff. So be careful. The picture here is really important for us. Jesus in the Beatitudes gives us a little insight by telling us what we ought to be. We know we need to worship, but how do we get there? That becomes the problem for most of us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. The ones who don't have anything to bring to the table, the ones who recognize their own bankrupt nature before a holy God, the ones that say, I'm empty, please fill me, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what happens. You see, for me, when I see myself correctly and I'm willing to acknowledge who I really am, then there's only one king that'll sit on my throne the throne that I worship at, the one that should be in heaven, the one that should have God on, I don't put anything else up there if I see it correctly. If I see God the way I should see him. Those characteristics during the Beatitudes cause me to see myself in a place of woe. Why? Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Jesus goes on and on in this amazing passage we call the Sermon on the Mount and describes these things that are antithetical to every single thing we're prone to trust in in this life. Amen? Do good to those who hurt you. Is that upside down or backwards according to the world? It is. But that's how you see God. Because when I see people through his eyes, then I understand that there's got to be something going on in that person's life. And that is why they hurt me. You see, I see them the way I'm supposed to see them when I see myself the way I should see myself. When I know that I need grace, I am a bearer of grace. When I understand my desperate need for mercy, guess what I want to give everyone else? Mercy. When I know that without his forgiveness, no one sees heaven, including me, guess how forgiving I am? All day, every day. These things are antithetical to the way our world worships because the world worships violence. Sometimes I turn on the TV, Are we really so absolutely upside down in our culture that we think there's something good about beating another person half to death? I can't can't wrap my head around it. I, I sit here and look at these things and I go, no wonder the world is in the state it's in. Because instead of being merciful and kind... We are brutal and angry. Instead of being forgiving and merciful, I'm going to extract my pound of flesh and I'm going to get what's mine. You see, when I see God, then I want other people to see God in me. And I start living the kind of life I'm supposed to live. Notice what verse 5 says. I have unclean lips. And I dwell in a place that's filled with people with unclean lips. I actually see things 
and I hear things the way I'm supposed to hear them and see them. Why the Apostle Paul said, there is none righteous, not one. All of sin and fallen short of the glory. We all need a glimpse of heaven in order to know that we need to be inclined to heaven. But if we don't acknowledge the fact that we aren't already there, if I don't say in my own soul, God help me because I have not completed the journey yet, I'm not home. Then all of a sudden I think, well, you know, everybody else's lips. I want you to notice what Isaiah does. He says, it's not just them, it's me. The problem is not just the people in Jerusalem. The problem is me, Lord. Depart from me because I'm actually part of the problem. You see, the earthly tabernacle was supposed to be a little picture of heaven. And when you came into the the temple complex, now I'll try and simplify this for you. There was a beautiful white linen fence that stretched around the outside of the wilderness tabernacle. And there were plates of gold and plates of silver, precious things. And so there was a separation between all of the tribes of the children of Israel that separated them with this white linen fence representing the holiness of God from everything holy. But in the front, on the east side, there was a gate. And that gate was multicolored. Do you know why it was multicolored? Because it represented that every tribe and tongue and nation and every person of every flavor and ilk was welcome to go into that holiness, provided two things happened. Once you got inside, there was immediately a place to offer up your sin. We call that the brazen altar where the sacrifices were burned up. And those sacrifices were burned up and they went up to God. So there was confession. Guess what the second thing was? A big bronze laver filled with water. And guess what happened there? You washed off the dirt. You got rid of the blood from the sacrifice. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to cleanse our sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but all can come to God through that one gate. Jesus called himself what? I am the door of the sheep. All who enter in by me will be safe. Why? Because your sins can be forgiven and they can be cleansed. You see, this heavenly picture that we have here is actually pointing us towards the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because in that sense, heaven is very much like earth in that way. Because the plan that God has for us has always been the same. The Jewish people had a perfect picture of Messiah. You can only come in by one gate, but to get there, you've got to have your sins forgiven and they must be cleansed. The price has to be paid. 
And then what happened is as you approach this, basically a tent that had these beautiful boards on the side of it that were gilded with gold. As you got to the door, the priest would have to come in and guess what? The first thing you come to is a table of showbread. There was a loaf for every single tribe. So no matter who you were, there was a loaf for you. You know why Jesus said, I am the bread of life? And he who eats of me? You see, this is all the picture. And so this picture that Isaiah sees, this throne room of heaven, he's given us a glimpse. He says, look, the only way you can get into this heavenly scene is the same way you've always gotten into this heavenly scene. And whether it was the temple which this model is in Jerusalem. We actually visit this exact model. It's a 126 scale replica of Solomon's temple. When you got inside, here's a table of showbread directly in front of this curtain that separated everyone from the holiness of God, including all the priests, was a little tiny altar. It's only two foot by two foot. Four horns, one on each corner. And in it was the picture that Isaiah saw. The coals of the altar, because those were the coals of confession. They were the prayers of the saints. As those prayers were offered up, they went up to heaven, and God heard them and answered them. You see, when you talk to God, he's listening. When you confess your sin... He's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. And so when Isaiah saw himself correctly, what he saw was exactly what you would have seen inside of Solomon's temple. Here comes the cherubim grabbing the tongs that stood beside the altar, and he grabbed a coal and went over and said, It's okay. Your sins are forgiven, you're cleansed. You got in here past the offering and and you washed yourself. Don't carry that around any longer. But how many Christians, because they won't see themselves correctly, they can't see God correctly, and then they carry around their junk for the whole rest of their life. And then directly to the left of that, and so beautiful is this picture, as you walk through first the portico, the court, and then into the holy place, the holy place is the second chamber that's in the back of that very beautiful building was a giant menorah. Now you know why Jesus said, I am the light of the world and he who walks in me shall not walk in darkness. You see, you had to make the trip from the bread to the altar to the light. And Isaiah is saying, look, when I see myself, then I want to make the trip from the bread because I'm like everyone else to the altar to the light because I confess my sin because I dwell in a people of unclean lips it is only then that you finally have access to the mercy seat it, that's what stood in the holy of holies In the holy place, 
table of showbread, altar of incense, the giant menorah, the lampstand. But that curtain, which represented holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come, dwelt right there between those two cherubim. And the high priest, one day a year on the Day of Atonement, would offer up a sacrifice for all of Israel and for his own self, his own family, and would come and would sprinkle the blood between those two cherubim. That's called the Bema. Same one that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that one day we'll all appear before the Bema seat of Christ to receive a reward for those things done in the body whether good or bad, now go back to that heavenly scene in Revelation 4. And it is there that those crowns, as they begin to see God for who he is, recognize themselves for who they are, all they can do is say, this crown's for you. And they throw it at the feet of Jesus. Isaiah understood that his iniquity needed to be taken away. My crookedness is the picture that we have here. It was only then that we can see the closing thought here. Pick up with me, verse 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, You see, you will never hear the voice of the Lord until first you've seen God for who he is, second, you have seen you for who you are, and third, you have walked that road of repentance saying, Lord, here am I, cleanse me. You'll never see God. You may know about him. You may have some understanding of who he is, but you can't see God until you see him for who he is, you for who you are, and until you've done business with God. It is then also that I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? You will not be sent until you have first been saved. You can't go anywhere for God until you're ready to go for God. And he says, who will go for us? And this is an accurate rending, rendering of the original passage in Hebrew. It says us, why? Because there is an us to the Godhead. There is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all three existed in the time of Isaiah. And then he said, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people. Keep on hearing but do not understand, who keeps seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. In other words, unless they put a Uzziah on the throne. I took Uzziah out of your life, Isaiah, and now I want you to go and remove the Uzziahs out of the people of Judah's life. I want you to help them see what needs to go. Understand with their heart and return and be healed. He says, I don't want them coming for the wrong reason. The very same thing, by the way, that we'll see as John the Baptist welcomes the Pharisees to the Jordan River. 
And he says to them, oh, no, 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 no. You don't come down here first. You've got to go repent. Then you can come down here. Go do business with God first. Don't come down here for the wrong reason, in other words. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he answered, till their cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. Till the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. And the Lord has removed away men from far away and forsaken the places that are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and will be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. And so the holy seed shall be its stump. In other words, there'll be a remnant. And we're going to see in chapter 7 that Isaiah's sons, one of them actually gets named a remnant remains, a stump remains. You see, once God has touched your life, the next question is, will you go? Will you let God send you? Will you let God call you into a place of service? And so he says, look, I want you to give them all of my word. I want you to literally stuff them with my word. That's what the rendering is here of the Hebrew. You see, Isaiah is going to take a beating for standing for God. And God's saying, that's okay, I got your back. The church is the instrument God wants to use. You are part of the church, and therefore God wants to use you as an instrument. But he can't do that until you have seen him correctly. You have seen yourself correctly until you've done business with God and said about yourself, I know who I am. Lord, fix my problem. And once that happens, God wants to say to you, will you go? Will you go? You see, if you're really seeing correctly as this passage reminds us, you will see the Lord as he really is. You will see yourself the way you really are. You won't cave into blindness. That was the problem of Israel. And you will be ready for the Lord to speak into your life. Here am I. Send me. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll pray. Invite some of the pastors, the prayer team up front if you need prayer. Maybe you're wondering if God wants to send you. I'm here to tell you he does. I can't tell you where that is, but I can tell you he wants to send every last one of us somewhere. It might be to that person at work. It may be to a family member. It may be into full-time ministry. Maybe, maybe you're being called tonight to do something vocationally for the Lord. To say, Lord, here am I. So let's ask him to speak into our lives. Father, thank you. Thank you for this incredible picture of the call of Isaiah. Lord, as he saw you for who you are and then saw himself for who he was. And the Lord allowed himself to walk that Romans road of repentance and cleansing, forgiveness, to put himself in a place to where you could use him. And Lord, he answered that call faithfully 
And so we pray tonight for those that are here. And God, you'd speak into our lives, your plans. We're reminded that you, Jesus, as you called out uh, your church into this world and what we call the Great Commission, part of that Great Commission was to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, preaching the gospel and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We pray that God tonight he would call us or that we would listen and that we would reply exactly as Isaiah replied here am I send me Lord we're yours we want to be used of you in these days or we believe they are the last days we don't know how long you're going to tarry but we know there are lost people that we know that desperately need the truth we know our nation needs a witness Lord, we need to know that this world needs a witness. Send us, Lord. We're willing to go. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power it has to change us. We ask all this in the mighty name of the Holy One who is in heaven, the one who was and is and is to come, our King Jesus. Amen.